You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're broadcasting from Johannesburg and are on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. My name is Spumelele Zondi, driving the show with Amanda Machaka, Usane Matebula, and Musibu Dimakura. Your top stories on Africa Digest this hour. UN mission in the DRC calls on authorities to reconsider its decision to expel the director of a UN agency. SEDEC to deploy 70 observers to monitor Botswana's elections. In economics, Global African Investment Summit kicks off in London. And in sports, South Africa's sports minister says the country is not ready to host the Africa Cup of Nations. But first, the news with Amanda. Good evening. The ruling party in Mozambique, Frilimo, has retained the Maputo province with 63% of the votes cast during Wednesday's general election. The opposition, Renamo, got 19%, and Mozambique and Democratic Movement followed with 15% of the votes. The province's final results were announced by the Mozambique Election Commission this afternoon. Mutsibwa Munareng reports. The ruling Frelimo has retained the economic hub of the country Maputo by securing over 130,000 votes. According to the results, the opposition Renama has won the provinces Zambezia and Sofala. However, the ruling party retained other provinces in the country such as Nyambane, Manike and Tete. Youth issues are expected to take center stage in Botswana's upcoming elections. They says political parties are racing to garner support from the youth who make up 47% of the registered 823,000 voters. While the hotly contested elections will see a coalition of opposition parties challenging the ruling Botswana Democratic Party, youths in Botswana say issues around unemployment should be top of the election agenda. The lack of jobs is a big problem in Botswana, and the current government is not doing anything to help us. They give us worthless jobs with no real value. Just imagine a Botswana with a degree working at Ipelecheng, earning 300 pula or 500 pula. We are very prepared for these elections. We want to see ourselves having satisfactory jobs. The United Nations mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo has called on the country's government to reconsider its decision to expel the director of the UN Joint Office for Human Rights. The Congolese authorities described Scott Campbell as a persona non grata after he published a report revealing that at least nine people were killed by police during an operation of crackdown on gangsters in Kinshasa last November. Carlos Araujo is a United Nations mission spokesperson in Kinshasa. The head of MONUSCO is deeply disturbed by the request of the DRC government calling for the departure of Scott Campbell, the chief of the United Nations Joint Human Rights Office, and he has called upon the government to reconsider its decision. He expressed his full confidence and trust in Scott Campbell and the work undertaken by the the team. The Likofi report was prepared in accordance with the Security Council mandate for MONUSCO and followed the methodology used by the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. Any Duani's cousin says she was suspicious of murder accused Shrein Duani's behavior shortly after his wife's murder. 
Sneha Mashru was the eighth witness to take the stand in the trial of the British businessman in the Western Cape High Court in Cape Town, South Africa. Berenice Moss reports. Sneha Mashru told the court that Sawani had meticulously planned and wrote down on a spreadsheet the details of how Annie's funeral was to take place. At the funeral parlor, while she and Annie's sister were dressing the body, Sawani was also present, not the normal practice and had manhandled her body. Marshall says Dewani did not come across as a grieving husband, and this prompted her to secretly record him during a family meeting. She says shortly after the wedding, Annie complained of being unhappy, but didn't like the word divorce, and this would disgrace the Dewani family and be seen as shameful. The case continues. And finally, human rights activist Jesse Jackson says South Africa must wage a new struggle to fight for social change. Speaking after laying wreaths at the graves of Ravonia trialists, Gavin Beggy and Raymond Mklaba in Port Elizabeth in the Eastern Cape province, Jackson said social inequality was a new frontier of apartheid in South Africa. Jackson says the struggle is a process. We're free, but not equal. We've ended skin color apartheid. Equality is the next dimension of our struggle. We're not in that land apartheid or employment apartheid. There's work to be done. That was, must be said about Gov and Becky. He dignified the glory of workers. Workers matter. And so there is now a new model of democratizing our economy. That's the latest news. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. The United Nations mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo has called on the country's government to reconsider its decision to expel the director of the UN Joint Office for Human Rights. The Congolese authorities described Scott Campbell as a persona non grata after he published a report revealing that at least nine people were killed by police during an operation of crackdown on gangsters in Kinshasa last November. Jean-Noël Bamwenze reports from Kinshasa. The director of the United Nations Joint Office for Human Rights is no more welcome here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Authorities believe he has published a wrong report in order to destabilize the government. The government has rejected the whole findings in connection with the anti-gang operation well known as Likofi, although the report has accused the national police to have executed at least nine people and more than 30 are still missing up to now. But the UN mission, well known as MONUSCO, doesn't really agree with the Congolese government, especially when it comes to its decision to expel Mr. Scott Campbell, since the UN believes he has done a good job as far as human rights are concerned here. MONUSCO has received an official request from the Kinshasa government for the departure of Campbell, but the head of the mission, Martin Kobler, has expressed the full support and emphasized his confidence and trust in Mr. Campbell. 
In a press statement released this weekend, Mr. Kobler said he is disturbed by the Congolese government request and called on authorities here to reconsider such a decision. Carlos Araujo is a United Nations Mission spokesperson here in Kinshasa. The head of MONUSCO is deeply disturbed by the request of the DRC government calling for the departure of Scott Campbell, the chief of the United Nations Joint Human Rights Office, and he has called upon the government to reconsider its decision. He expressed his full confidence and trust in Scott Campbell and the work undertaken by the, the team. The Likofi report was prepared in accordance with the Security Council mandate for MONUSCO and followed the methodology used by the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. In his press release, Kobler said that it takes full responsibility for its conclusions and recommendations. The human rights reports published jointly by MONUSCO and the United Nations Joint Human Rights Office are important catalysts ensuring good governance leading to stability. Human rights defenders play an important role in the DRT and they must be able to work unimpeded. The Likofi report is an important instrument in the fight against impunity in the DRC. The report was shared with the government on 18th August 2014 and comments by the Minister of Interior were annexed to the report published. Meanwhile, the director of the UN Joint Office for Human Rights has left this country on Friday for a long scheduled vacation. He is expected to come back here, according to Araujo. On the other side, the government spokesperson Lambert Mende has said Campbell can't return here in the Democratic Republic of Congo in his capacity as director of the UN Joint Office for Human Rights. Jean-Noël Bamwezi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. There's been fierce fighting between Boko Haram militants and Cameroon's military in two towns in the north of the Central African nation. Eight Cameroonian soldiers and close to 150 Boko Haram fighters have been killed in the fighting that started last Wednesday. A spokesperson for Cameroon's government refutes allegations the Nigerian violent group already has a branch in Cameroon. Channel Africa's Moke Kinzaga reports from Yaoundé. Cameroon's military spokesman, Colonel Didier Bajek, says the battles have been taking place in the Cameroonian localities of Amchide, Fotokol, Makambara, and Jokona on the border with Nigeria. Didier Bajek says about 150 assailants have been killed and a few armored cars belonging to the invaders destroyed, while huge consignments of war weapons were seized. Many more Boko Haram fighters were killed. We are not counting the number of corpses the assailants took back to Nigeria, but I must indicate here that their attacks in Cameroon have increased in the last few months. They even come with armored cars, but I must tell you that they have been recording enormous losses in the past few months. The media reports that so many Cameroonian soldiers and civilians lost their lives, but Didier Bajek claims that 20 civilians and 8 soldiers have so far been killed in the incursions. 
Ne vous fiez pas à ces statistiques qui sont amplifiées par des individus. Do not consider those statistics shared by uninformed people. We are managing the situation and giving the facts. Those who want to tarnish our image are informed that Cameroon is a mature country. Vous pouvez être assuré qu'ils seront servis par la maturité du Cameroun et que nous voyons toujours. Media organs have also been reporting that it is likely Boko Haram has extended its base into Cameroon. A few months ago, the violence group seized the Cameroonian border town of Ashigashia, but were chased after close to a month of occupation. Cameroon's communication minister and government spokesman, Isa Chiruma, refutes allegations that the Nigerian group has installed itself in Cameroonian territory. Allusion is being made of a conspiracy and of an armed rebellion under the cover of Boko Haram in Cameroon. This is a bunch of ungrounded, flagrant allegations. This is not the first attempt to destabilize Cameroon. Everyone knows who Boko Haram is and what their motivation from their base in Nigeria are. It is in their quest for a support base to conduct its fight within Nigeria that this criminal organization is attacking part of our country. No one in our country would want to be distracted by such amenities which have nothing to do with the situation actually lived in Cameroon. Cameroon shares a border of more than 2,000 kilometers with Nigeria, where Boko Haram has been waging a bloody insurgency since 2009. The fighting in Cameroon has been going on even when Nigeria announced that it had negotiated a ceasefire with Boko Haram and the more than 200 schoolgirls kidnapped by the group from the Nigerian town of Chibok six months ago will be released. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. Today marked the third anniversary of the capture and killing of Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi. Gaddafi, who fled into hiding after rebels toppled his regime in the Arab Spring's most tumultuous uprising, was killed on 20 October 2011 as fighters battling the vestiges of his loyalist forces wrested control of his hometown of Sirte. After nearly 42 years at the helm of his sparsely populated all-rich nation, Muammar Gaddafi, the Arab world's longest ruling leader, finally lost his grip on power after a six-month uprising. Critics dismissed his leadership as a military dictatorship, accusing him of repressing civil society and ruthlessly crushing dissident. Joining us on the line from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia to speak more about this is Dr. Solomon Derso. He is a senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Dr. Derso. Thank you very much for having me. Um, Dr. Derso, although not held in high regard by the West, Gaddafi was hailed by most Africans for his contributions. What would you say is a positive legacy he left behind? Uh, as you rightly pointed out, uh, Gaddafi was not considered as a positive force uh, in uh, regional and international politics. Uh, despite this fact, uh, because of his 
uh, eccentric political behaviors, uh, Gaddafi has been one of the few African leaders who have championed uh, institutional evolution within the continental uh, body, uh, the Organization of African Unity, later on within the African Union. Uh, and in that context, of course, uh, partly because of the many agenda items that Gaddafi used to propose, uh, some of the, those agenda items or the counter-agenda items that other African leaders uh, came up in order to basically uh, contain uh, Gaddafi's eccentric uh, proposals, they led eventually to uh, the transformation of the organization of African Union into the African Union. Uh, so, uh, although not necessarily a positive force, uh, even in regional politics, because Gaddafi has been sponsoring uh, some of the most uh, brutal rebel groups uh, on the continent, in, in different parts of the continent, uh, institutional transformation within the continental body, in some ways, is attributable to uh, some of the agenda facing proponents uh, made by Gaddafi. So perhaps that is one area uh, he has been championing, advocating for uh, stronger and higher levels of continental integration, uh, including the debate about the African Union, the African Union Authority, that is basically taking the African Union to the next level of uh, integration. Uh, that was also attributable to uh, Gaddafi as well. Mm. Those are, I think, the, the that is the one area that Gaddafi would be remembered in terms of uh, a positive legacy in Africa. You mentioned that he wanted to take the African Union to the next level, which was largely called the United States of Africa. But how much of that was genuine and how much of that was for his own self-benefit? Well, in, in, so, in so many ways. I mean, some of these uh, projects and, 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 and agenda facing the first time, uh, was about uh, uh, Gaddafi's personality and his ideological orientation uh, than about really uh, serious and genuine uh, desire for uh, the establishment of the United States of uh, America, uh, Africa, as has as been uh, said uh, at the time. Uh, partly it has also, of course, to do with uh, lack of uh, proper comprehension of the realities of the political, socio-economic, uh, and uh, other aspects of development and diversity on the African continent. Uh, did he have support from all African leaders? No, actually, Gaddafi has been a very divisive figure uh, among African leaders. Uh, there were some African leaders who despised Gaddafi so much, uh, and there were others uh, who, uh, for good or ill, uh, didn't have a choice but, you know, to lie behind Gaddafi. All right, um, and you may find very few who genuinely back and support. Uh, the ideas and, and, and proponents of Gaddafi and such uh, on 
its own merit uh, rather than on account of uh, the goodies that Gaddafi uh, was known to uh, make use of in terms of leveraging uh, and buying the support of African leaders. Some in public discourse have said that um, him being overthrown was largely due to the West. But was he really? Was it really largely due to the West? And was he liked by anybody in Libya? Really? It's 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 a difficult one. I think uh, I think one can say that. Uh, those who benefited from his uh, regime basically uh, offered support for him, uh, but there were uh, various sections of society who uh, genuinely despised uh, Gaddafi as well. Uh, so certainly there is a Western element, but there is also uh, quite a significant uh, section of society who didn't like uh, Gaddafi's rule. Now, three years after he was killed, Libya is in chaos. What do you make of what's happening there right now? Well, it is quite a very tragic turn of events, what happened in Libya. Uh, in some ways, uh, the turn of events, uh, particularly uh, the incremental distance of Libya into anarchy uh, and chaos, uh, bringing the country to the brink of an, an all-right uh, civil war, uh, is in some ways a result of a lack of foresight uh, at the time of the military campaign against the Gaddafi region. Uh, a lack of foresight uh, in two respects. One was in respect to uh, lack of proper planning of the transition after Gaddafi was removed. Uh, And second, after Gaddafi was removed, uh, those countries who supported uh, the the rebellion against Gaddafi uh, were not adequately present in Libya to help the country rebuild itself, reconstruct itself. And these two omissions obviously uh, led to the kind of situation that, uh, the kind of disaster that that Libya has become today. Uh, If there was proper planning of the transition, for example, along the lines of what uh, that Union proposed, or after Gaddafi was removed, if the international community uh, discharged its responsibility of helping Libya rebuild itself, uh, then there would have been a possibility of avoiding uh, the current disaster that the country has become. You speak of what the African Union had proposed, but what is that? What has the African Union proposed? As you remember, at the time of the crisis in Libya, uh, the African Union uh, was among the first uh, actors to initiate a process uh, for resolving the crisis in Libya. Uh, and uh, in March 2011, the African Union Peace and Security Council adopted a roadmap for the resolution of what is called the Libyan crisis. 
and that roadmap uh, consisted of uh, about five elements, uh, and of which uh, the first one had to do with uh, cessation of hostilities and the establishment of a ceasefire. Uh, the second one has to do with addressing the humanitarian uh, crisis that the, that the Libyan uh, conflict created, and also uh, giving protection to African migrant workers who were caught uh, in the crossfire. And then there was also a plan for a political process for establishing a transitional uh, government uh, based on negotiations of the different uh, elements, both the rebels as well as uh, Gaddafi's government at the time. What's your take on Libya's current leadership? Well, uh, Libya at the moment uh, is, is, is lacking uh, any leader that has the support of uh, all tribal, regional, uh, ideological divisions currently prevalent in the country. Uh, so, you, so you have a situation where uh, state authority uh, and government authority is either challenged or uh, strongly lacking. Uh, and therefore, uh, you have at the moment various uh, contenders for state authority and state power uh, struggling for uh, dominance uh, in the political as well as in the security landscape of the country. Uh, various divisions, including regional divisions, tribal divisions, religious and ideological divisions, uh, feeding into uh, these rivalries and, and, and power struggles, uh, often taking the form also of military confrontations, uh, as we have witnessed uh, over the course of the past uh, two years, uh, and currently culminating in uh, the division of uh, in the emergence of two uh, parallel governments, one uh, that uh, uh, mostly Islamist uh, groups uh, have and are run uh, from the capital Tripoli, another one uh, that is being run from Tibruk, uh, outside of uh, some kilometers outside of uh, uh, Tripoli, uh, based on the uh, electoral results of the recent parliamentary election. So the new parliament and the new government is based in Tobruk uh, and another government that controls the capital Tripoli. So you have a situation in which there is uh, a total breakdown of the authority of government and state and therefore political leadership in, in, in the country. Are we looking at a civil war in Libya and how do you see things playing out in the near future? It is a very difficult one to tell. I, I think how this uh, crisis is going to unfold uh, depends on uh, a number of factors. Uh, some of the factors are uh, internal factors, internal to uh, the situation in Libya. And uh, in significant ways, this has to do with uh, the willingness of uh, the two factions uh, running parallel governments to uh, come to the negotiating table and uh, have a political resolution of the crisis. 
but it's not entirely uh, an, inter- uh, an internal issue as well. Uh, the reason for this is that, uh, unfortunately, regional politics uh, weighs heavily in the current unfolding crisis in Libya. Uh, countries that are anti-Muslim Brotherhood, such as Egypt, such uh, as Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, uh, back uh, one of the military factions led by General Haftar, uh, who was uh, formerly uh, Gaddafi's general until his fallout after the uh, Libya's war with, with, with Chad. Uh, and then you have other countries like Qatar, who support the Islamist groups who control uh, Benghazi as well as the capital city, Tripoli, and run the parallel government in Tripoli. And these regional uh, rivalries manifest themselves in so many ways in the current crisis. And they are the most uh, unhelpful uh, factors in the current crisis and may lead uh, and, and, and force the country actually into a full-scale civil war uh, unless the leaders of both sides uh, see wisdom in, in, in avoiding this and, and, and uh, limit uh, this external influence and intervention uh, so that, you know, Libya would be able to uh, define its political course type. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Solomon Derso. Thank you. That was Dr. Solomon Derso, senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies, talking to us about Libya as it is the third anniversary of the capture and killing of Muammar Gaddafi. It's time now for your news headlines with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Spumelele. Good evening. The ruling party in Mozambique, Frilimo, has retained the Maputo province with 63% of the votes cast during Wednesday's general election. The opposition, Renamo, got 19% and Mozambique and Democratic Movement followed with 15% of the votes. More than 70 observers will be deployed by SADC Electoral Observer Mission to assess Friday's general elections in Botswana. Election preparations are in full swing in that country. And the Synagogue Church of All Nations says it believes the repatriation of South Africans who died when a residence collapsed in Lagos last month is imminent. More than 80 South Africans died in the disaster. And those are news headlines. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, 
Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Seventeen thirty-two Central African Time at Africa Digest, right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now, health activists in South Africa have reiterated their call for the government to provide access to cheaper medicines for patients by finalizing the country's long-awaited intellectual property policy. One of the most significant reforms proposed in the draft version of the policy is stricter criteria in future examinations of patents so that fewer are granted. This emerged at the National Summit on Intellectual Property and Access to Medicines, which took place in Pretoria today. For more on this, we joined on the line by Julia Hill, an advocacy officer for the International Medical Humanitarian Agency, Doctors Without Borders, or MSF. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Julia. Hi, thank you for having me. Julia, what's wrong with South Africa's current patent system? Well, the most prominent problem that we face today is that um, there's no actual examination of new patent applications. And so what this means is that Companies will make a small change to their medicine or perhaps they'll combine it with another drug or find a new use for it and then they'll patent those, um, those modifications and they'll, extend, they'll keep extending the patent on and on and on and so it keeps blocking comp- competition and cheaper medicine prices from coming into South Africa. So this is really actually quite, um, quite an unusual thing for a country to have because most other countries, they do examine patent applications and they have stricter standards for what is innovative and what deserves um, a patent monopoly. But here, everything gets a patent, so um, we're really stuck with a lot of pharmaceutical patents being granted and medicine prices being a lot higher than they are in other countries. Now, the government had previously promised to have the National Intellectual Property Policy finalized and tabled in cabinet. Why are there delays in finalizing this policy? So what we heard today from the government is, um, is that one year ago they released a draft policy and for public comment, and they received a significant number of, um, of submissions uh, commenting on the policy and suggesting ways to improve it. Um, so they've been in the process of compiling those comments uh, and are trying to submit a final policy. They said today that they would uh, finish a policy by the end of the year so that um, new legislation could start to be uh, put into place in the coming year. Um, however, I think at the same time they're also under a lot of pressure from uh, the pharmaceutical industry and um, particular countries that um, where those pharmaceutical companies are based to not change the laws because it would cut into the profit margins of of these companies. So um, I think both the legislative reform process is taking a while and they're facing a lot of pressure not to make the changes. However, today they did commit to actually making sure that examination of patent applications would start to take place, that there would be room to oppose patents that were perhaps 
frivolous and not warranted, um, and a number of other safeguards to make sure that medicine prices could be kept under control. From your knowledge, is South Africa the only country that has this problem? It isn't. Um, I mean, any country that is a member of the World Trade Organization, and that's most countries, um, especially those that are um, not least developed countries, but um, countries at higher levels of, of economic development, they do have to grant pharmaceutical patents. So, um, but at the same time, those countries have the right under um, what we call the TRIPS Agreement, which puts in place you're allowed to make certain changes to your law to make sure that um, the public interest isn't harmed. And in the case of South Africa, I mean, we have a constitutional right as well to be able to access healthcare services. So the country actually has the, the right to put these, these laws into place. Um, other countries, such as India and Brazil, um, have done or have done the same thing or they um, already, or they're in the process of kind of reforming again um, to improve what they've, what they've done before to try and protect public health. You mentioned the issue of pricing and profit margins that these companies complain about, but some pharmaceutical companies have consistently used the argument that if South Africa makes it more difficult to gain patents, it will undermine all future innovation. Do you agree with this? Um, you know, really, we don't. I mean, we find that most of the research and development is actually conducted in the U.S. and Europe on new medicines, um, and these, um, and so the, the pharmaceutical market in in Africa as a whole is quite small. So, really, the impact that this has on pharmaceutical companies is quite minimal. But at the same time, pharmaceutical companies um, are exploiting their patent monopolies to charge really exorbitant prices, and we're seeing that more and more, um, especially with cancer medicines, new treatments for hepatitis C. Um, and even countries like the U.S. are um, starting to complain about the high price of medicines that are, are just extremely expensive. I mean, for example, um, a new hepatitis C medicine in the States, a course of treatment costs 84000 U.S. dollars uh, for 12 weeks of treatment, and it's simply unaffordable for, um, for most people in the States. So it's, it's not a problem that's exclusive to South Africa, and I think we need to think about how we incentivize medical research and development so that um, the prices of the new products that we get can be affordable from the beginning. Um, We shouldn't have to finance research and development through the public sector and then have pharmaceutical companies take up those, those products and exploit people and their inability to pay. As Medicine Sans Frontiers, what impact will such a policy have on the, um, on your work in particular? Um, well, we've struggled here in South Africa. I mean, in the past, it was um, a very public battle over the price of antiretroviral drugs. And because um, organizations like Medicine Sans Frontier and Treatment Action Campaign fought so hard for access to affordable medicines, we now get quite good prices on, on antiretrovirals, at least compared to the, the global picture. Um, but today, we're facing increasing problems in accessing um, TB drugs, especially drugs for drug-resistant tuberculosis, um, which are much more expensive. And there are some new drugs coming onto the market, but um, we need to be able to use these in combinations with other drugs to effectively treat a patient. And if they're too expensive, as we found was the case with um, a TB drug we've been using called linazolid, where it costs over 700 rand per pill in the private sector, and you need to take the pill for up to two years. Um, so it 
quickly becomes quite unaffordable. Uh, so um, this drug, we managed to actually get access to a generic recently through special permission, but um, we can't continue to keep fighting these battles drug by drug. We need a system that actually works to prevent some of these problems from happening in the first place. All right. Thank you very much, Julia, for joining us today. Thank you. That's Julia Hill, Advocacy Officer for International Medical Humanitarian Agency Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, talking to us about what emerged at the National Summit on Intellectual Property and Access to Medicines, which took place in Pretoria today. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. More than 70 observers will be deployed by the Southern African Development Community, or SADC, Electoral Observer Mission to assess Friday's general elections in Botswana. Election preparations are in full swing in that country. Over 800,000 Botswana have registered to make their mark in the country's 11th general elections. SADC is expected to release its preliminary findings on the electoral process on 26 October. Adan Gebre Meskel, advisor at the SEDEC Council of NGOs, elaborates. I think so far the preparations seems to be quite okay and everything seems to be set for the election on Fridays. There are no extraordinary incidents that is expected at this moment in time. Would you say campaigning has been robust and vigorous in a positive way? Indeed, indeed. I think this time around, I think Botswana is experiencing one of the most vibrant elections and highly contested, but still remains very peaceful so far. And as I say, there is no extraordinary things expected from this, but uh, it is one of the most vibrant elections that the, the country is, is been experiencing. And what sense do you get of what the outcome will be? We have to wait how the electorate is going to decide. Uh, we will see uh, what the outcome would be after the elections are done. Because Southern Council of NGOs is going to observe this election in cooperation with the uh, Botswana Council of Churches. So as observers, we are not in a position to predict what the results would be until such a time that the Independent Electoral Commission has delivered on the results of the election. But what we are expecting is that uh, the elections are going to be very peaceful, uh, hopefully transparent and uh, free and fair. What exactly are the observers looking out for? The observers are going to look at the overall electoral processes, how they IEC going to conduct itself, but also they are going to observe the electoral environment, the political, in terms of stability, security, and also we are going to observe uh, in terms of access to media and how the reporting has been and whether the allocation of uh, time, airtime in the public broadcasting has been equitable according to the electoral law and so on. There are many aspects that we are going to look at and also the legal environment itself.
whether the elections have adhered to the set legal frameworks, both the constitution as well as the electoral act of the country. What is the mood like on the ground in Botswana? Quite stable, uh, just not uh, not extraordinary things. I think the B- Botswana has got a more or less well-established democratic structure and processes, and elections are seems to be very very regular and normal event political events. Uh, despite the fact that this election is highly contested, but uh, situation is quite calm and stable. That was Adan Gebremeskel, advisor of the SEDA Council of NGOs, on the line from Khaburone, Botswana, talking to Tracy Pumgod. It's time now for your economic news with Wissani Matebula. Thanks, Pumelele. Moroccan Finance Minister Mohamed Bose says Morocco's external borrowing needs in 2015 will reach $2.77 billion. The North African Kingdom, which has been carrying out uh, subsidy reforms to trim public spending, may go to the international bond market to raise some external financing for next year. And shares in German sportswear firm Adidas jumped today. This comes after the Wall Street Journal reported that an investor group that includes Genoa Capital and funds affiliated with the Abu Dhabi government planned a $2.2 billion bid to buy Reebok. The two investors plan to make their offer in a letter to Adidas directors. Adidas is the world's second largest sports apparel firm behind Nike. It bought Reebok for $3.8 billion in August 2005. The Global African Investment Summit kicked off today in London. The two-day summit, chaired by former Nigerian President Olusegun Obasanjo, will seek to direct funds from some of the world's largest institutional investors into projects across five African states, Uganda, Tanzania, Rwanda, Ghana and Togo. The summit is a platform to bring bankable projects to the international markets, targeting a range of investors. Moody's credit ratings agency has raised Egypt's credit outlook to stable from negative, citing a more stable political and security situation and signs of economic recovery. It has refrained from upgrading the credit ratings, keeping it at CAA1, still one notch below Standard & Poor's, saying government finances are still too weak. Moody's says government's initiative and reforms launched over the past year including plans to phase out fuel and, and electricity subsidies and measures to lift public revenues by shifting to value-to-added tax system from a goods and services tax has improved the outlook. Financial indicators, the dollar trading at 11.07 South African rents at 9.01 Botswana Pulas and at 6.32 Zambian Kwachas. It is also trading at 0.62 to the British pound and at 0.79 against the euro. Moving on now to commodities, We're starting off with a platinum trading at $1,263, gold $1,235, a fine ounce, and the spot price of Brent crude oil has gone down from $95, uh, which it closed on on Friday. Now it's at $86.33 per barrel, 
due to a lack of oil output in OPEC-producing nations. And that's how it's looking. Sibuti Makura is here with the Sports News now. Good day, sports fans, and starting off with football news, Nigeria caretaker coach Shabu Amadu says the Super Eagles can still qualify for next year's AFCON despite the difficult position they find themselves in. As a result of CAF's regulations for the 2015 Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers, Nigeria need to score three goals in Brazzaville on the 15th of November and not concede more than one to steady their ship to Morocco. The African reigning champions lost 3-2 to the Kong to Congo in Calabar last month and should both teams finish on equal number of points CAF will take into consideration the team that scored the most away goals in the fixture involving both teams. Once Nigeria hit three goals in Pontinua and do not concede more than one goal, all they need to do to qualify is to defeat South Africa on the 19th of, of November. And still on AFCON news, South Africa is not ready to host the 2015 Africa Cup of Nations in January if Morocco withdraws because of the Ebola epidemic. This is the word of the country sports minister, Figilem Balula. The Confederation of African Football has reportedly approached South Africa, Ghana and five other countries ahead of the 2nd of November meeting to decide on the future of the continent's premier football event. South Africa are among seven countries sounded out by the CAF as possible replacements should Morocco pull out. The identities of the other countries have not been officially announced. South Africa have twice been emergency host of the competition, replacing Kenya back in 1996 and the Strive Tour Libya last year. 
Aunt Athletics News, Kenyan Dennis Kimeto, the world marathon record holder, is one of the three finalists of the IWAF for the 2014 World Athlete of the Year Award. The other two male athletes shortlisted by the IWAF from an original list of 20 are Mozart Issa Bashim of Qatar, of Qatar as well as Frenchman Runard Leveyene. Channel Africa's Francis Motegim has the details. Kenyan Jairus Birach are the African 3,000 meter steeplechase and Yael Amos of Botswana win of the Diamond Race 800 meters and who is also a world leader and a Continental Cup African and Commonwealth champion were in the initial list of 20 finalists but have since been eliminated. The only other African in the running this time is Ethiopia's Genzebedi Baba following her impressive credentials that includes the Continental Cup gold, the 5,000 Middle world lead, breaking two world indoor records and a world indoor best and title. She has New Zealand's Valerie Adams and Daphne Shippers of Netherlands to contend with. The Council of the International Athletics Foundation will select the male and female winners of the World Athletes of the Year and make the much-awaited announcement during the 2014 World Athletics Gala in Monaco on Friday, 21st of November. And finally, in tennis news, top seed Serena Williams survived a stern test from Anna Ivanovic and eased concerns over her injured knee as she opened the WTA finals with a 6-4, 6-4 win today. The world number one settled after a nervous start to put in an ultimately clinically, clinical performance in Singapore in which she broke Ivanovic at crucial moments in both sets. Williams also proved her fitness in question after she withdrew from this month's China Open by chasing down and sliding into points and at one point during the splits. Ivanovic, a former world number one, is playing the year-ending tournament for the first time since 2008. Well, those are your sports news at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Let's recap our top stories this hour. UN mission in the DRC calls on authorities to reconsider its decision to expel the director of a UN agency. SEDEC to deploy more than 70 observers to monitor Botswana's elections. In economics, Global African Investment Summit kicks off in London and in sport, South Africa's sports minister says the country is not ready to host the Africa Cup of Nations. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today. For myself, Pumele Lezondi, producer Luanda Maome, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. For comments on the show, send us an email. It's info at channelafrica.org, info at channelafrica.org. Or send us an SMS, 2-27-823325905. That's plus 27-823325905. Taking us to the top of the hour is Abenguni by Tandiso Mazwai.